You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hello, Wade Zaglis here, Education Editor for Campus Review. Although little credibility has been given to President Trump's claims that the 2020 election was a fraud, he obstinately holds on to office, delaying the transition of power. But given the President's penchant for litigation and the denials flying around in the Republican camp, can we be sure Trump will finally get his marching orders and move on? Today, Campus Review is speaking to journalist and Professor of Australian Studies at ANU, Mark Kenny, about this transfer of power, as well as the accuracy of polls in 2020. He'll also comment on Biden's likely domestic and international policies, as well as how a Biden administration will approach an increasingly aggressive China. Professor Kenny, my first question has to be, in your opinion, does President Trump have any chance of overturning this election result, and if so, how? Uh, thanks, Ray. Great to be here. Look, uh, I don't think there's much evidence that he does. Uh, we, of course, are operating largely on the basis of second-hand information. Uh, you know, we have to go on the uh, advice of uh, and, and uh, evidence uh, of uh, people on the ground in the US, but all of the uh, evidence suggests it all points in one direction, that there is no uh, systematised voter fraud that has been going on in this election. There may be in the in the counting of, uh, or the casting and counting of uh, more than 160 million votes, there may be some errors that are done, uh, either in the casting or counting. There may be some errors that have uh, occurred as a result of uh, you know, the, the parceling of votes, uh, the transference of them or, or some such thing. But none of these things are, uh, are uncommon in elections and all of the evidence seems to point to um, these attempts by the Trump administration to cling on as just the kind of desperation, really, that has characterised uh, Trump's rhetoric uh, for a long time, uh, divisive, shrill and, uh, and in the end, um, uh, pointless. After the 2016 election, polls obviously lost a lot of credibility. Were there any changes to how polling was conducted this year that you are aware of that provided a more accurate result? Um, yes, well, certainly the polls uh, got it wrong in 2016. Uh, there was a widespread consensus, as you are as you're noting, that um, uh, Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president going into that election campaign. It was a, it was a view shared, I might say, by Donald Trump and his team as well, uh, who uh, we know, we know uh, booked a relatively modest venue for election night, not expecting to win. Um, but they did better in a number of those swing states, uh, states that we're all much more familiar with now as a result of watching that count and then this count this year. <clears throat> but um, uh, the polls certainly failed to understand what was going on. It's always difficult, of course, when you've got voluntary voting. You don't have compulsory voting like in Australia. so. It's not just a, you're not just trying to make judgments as a pollster about where people's preferences lay. You're trying to make judgments about their, their strength, their, the level of conviction that they have around those issues. Is it enough? Are they sufficiently motivated to, to go out and vote on, on election day or, or before it, as has been the case with, um, you know, with this election in particular because of COVID? Uh, they, they, you know, so it's hard always. You're always taking a sample and then trying to extrapolate from that sample, try and make it as representative as possible, and then try and extrapolate from your findings there 
what the implications are for the broader electorate. So there's always going to be some assumptions built into that. They're educated assumptions, but they've turned out to be wrong on a number of occasions. And they certainly failed to pick up, um, you know, a, an undercurrent in particularly white, uh, blue-collar uh, former Democrat supporters uh, in those uh, northern, northwestern states, uh, for example. And um, <clears throat> this time, I guess you'd say that there have also been some polling errors. They're not perhaps as pronounced as they were in 2016, mm-hmm. except maybe in one or two places. Uh, the polling in Florida does seem to have been fairly inadequate. It, it, it did predict a Biden win in Florida, and Trump had a fairly convincing, fairly safe win there in the end. And the polling failed to pick up, I think, uh, the level of commitment, the level of agitation that existed in particularly the Latino community in Florida, uh, and particularly because of those people being uh, you know, mostly made up of uh, expat Cubans and Venezuelans. Uh, they, uh, these are people that have a very low, um, a great fear of communism, a great, a very low opinion of anything that has a socialist tag on it, and that was the way Trump campaigned. So, it, the, the polling in Florida failed to recognise the electoral power of that particular constituency, and it looks like they've come out in fairly good numbers for Trump and given him Florida. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult business. We've seen polling in uh, a number of different places now. Uh, the, the last uh, federal election here, 2019, was another case. Even where we do have compulsory voting and preferential voting, and we, you know, we think we can read it a bit better. The polls all got it wrong in 2019. They all predicted Bill Shorten would be the next prime minister, and it was in fact Scott Morrison. Uh, not so, not so, um, you know, by not so much of a, um, a difficult uh, uh, process in 2019. The, the Liberals uh, survived reasonably well. So. Yes, polling doesn't have a very good name at the moment. No, and I, I heard on Planet America it can even come down to uh, someone's demographics. Like, for instance, certain uh, ethnicities are um, uh, more unlikely to answer the phone. Um, it, yes. There's gender difference and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's another equation to put into the mix, I guess. It's really interesting, actually, uh, watching the American coverage because they're much more open about discussing, um, sort of disaggregating the vote along those uh, categories you were talking about. They'll talk about uh, African-Americans or the black vote. They'll talk about the, 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 the middle-class vote. They'll, they'll split those into um, male and female and college-educated and non-college-educated. Yes. They disaggregate them in a, in a number of different ways. And, and from that, we can see that Trump did better with... Uh, uh, black males or African American males than was expected, um, uh, and um, not surprisingly, I suppose, given some of Trump's behaviour, particularly towards women, he didn't do as well uh, with women, particularly college-educated women. So, um, <clears throat> I guess uh, we, we're a bit unfamiliar with that. We, we've probably had a little bit of it in Australia, where we've um, become more conscious of, for example, the the ethnic Chinese vote. Uh, that's been a feature in a number of elections now, and uh, the parties are, are sort of much much wiser to that and are, are campaigning specifically to those sorts of uh, subgroups of the electorate. It was it was arguably the constituency that shifted in Benelong back in 2007 when John Howard not only lost the prime ministership, his party lost the majority. That is, uh, John Howard lost his seat of Benelong, and it was. 
thought that that was largely on the strength of a significant Chinese population in that seat that had shifted to Labor and which subsequently shifted back to, to the Liberals and, uh, and, and stays with, uh, with John Alexander, I think it is, mm-hmm. uh, who's the, the member there. So, you know, we're seeing some of these trends. They're, they're, they're all different, but we're, there, are, there are some big similarities, I think, in, in at least the trends that we're seeing in, um, in the creation of these constituencies and the way they're being discussed. What will a Biden presidency mean for America's domestic and international policies, uh, policies, excuse me, excluding China for the moment? Do you believe Biden wants the US to retain global hegemony? I, I think he does, and I think that uh, a good many other countries in the world would like to see that as well, particularly, and, and I know you want to leave China for a moment, just to make this simple point about about the the globe at the moment as china emerges the balancing role the, the sort of dominant role that the us has played uh, for a long time in, in in global leadership global stability has been under threat has been in, in decline it was in decline under trump because of his isolationism so i think there's a um, a great appetite if i saw an anticipation an optimism uh, right across the world, and in and in, in in a lot of the American population population, perhaps not all of it, but in a lot of the American population, to see the U.S. reassert itself as the global hegemon, and um, I think that is what Biden intends to do. Although I'm not, I think Biden will be uh, perhaps um, he'll be measured to some extent um, in, in in the way he goes about that. Uh, on the strength of uh, of Trumpism, really, he will know that Trumpism is a legitimate force. There is a strong isolationist tendency in uh, in American thought, in the American electorate, mm-hmm. um, perhaps outside of the elites, particularly. Uh, the, the issue of of American global dominance is is um, is looked at with far less interest. And so, I think Biden will be very keen to talk to uh, white working class voters, traditional Democrats, essentially, many of whom had abandoned the Democrats and gone to the Republicans, he'll be looking to get them back. So I don't expect to see, you know, as dramatic a return to um, the America of old as some people would predict. I think there'll be a, a, you know, I think Biden will go some way towards doing that, but perhaps not all the way domestically and internationally, however, I think um, he will, he's much more of a multilateralist. I expect to see him re-engage with the, the WHO, for example, which has been so critical, and uh, you know, in which Trump was, um, you know, uh, sort of incendiary in terms of blaming the WHO for its handling of the of the coronavirus in the early stages, and of course withdrew uh, U.S. membership. Um, similarly, uh, there's, um, you know, America is going to rejoin the Paris Agreement uh, and recommit to those 2050. Uh, emissions reduction targets, uh, the, the net 50 target and so forth. And there'll be a number of different ways in which I think uh, Joe Biden uh, administration will be looking to re-energize a lot of multilateral forums that, it, that the US has played such a pivotal role in establishing and in playing a leadership uh, function of them. And uh, I think that's going to be a welcome a welcome return, as, uh, as I saw someone write the other day. Welcome back is the... Um, the uh, sort of overwhelming sentiment around the world, from particularly from like-minded democracies, who who value the idea of a um, a dominant US. Yeah, and the and strong alliances definitely. 
Mm. Uh, finally, uh, Professor Kenny, in terms of his base, one of Trump's strengths was his goal to fix so-called unfair trading relationships with China. How do you think Biden will approach this touchy issue and other touchy issues regarding China? And how do you rate his chances of success? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think if I knew the answer to that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, um, I'd be able to tell the future uh, with great, uh, great accuracy because it, it's, it's, it is such a high, high well, number of different sort of problems associated with that. Um, but I think this touches back to some of the things we've been saying here, which is that um, he, he, what, what uh, America needs to do, and what I think Biden will be placing his emphasis on, uh, will be on reinvigorating uh, the international rules-based order. And to do that, you have to be, um, you have to have a lot of um, force behind you. You have to have a lot of uh, commitment. You have to be consistent. Uh, and you have to be predictable. And I think all of those things are the kinds of values and the kinds of tools that uh, Biden administration will be looking to bring back to the game. Now, specifically in the bilateral relationship, there's been a degree of high degree of consensus. It's one of the few things over which there has been any agreement recently uh, between both the Republicans and the Democrats on, on, on the question of um, competition with China. It's just really an argument about how you go about that. Um, Donald Trump did it with uh, um, a lot of bluster. And of course, his foreign policy was very strongly based around a couple of key principles. One was um, American isolationism, or, you know, he's only really interested in the domestic agenda. And the other was relationships, you know, he placing a huge amount of um, responsibility or, or focus on his personal relationship with various people, Xi Jinping being one of them. Uh, that, that hasn't amounted to much uh, when it comes to the coronavirus, for example, where Trump campaigned, you know, vociferously on on the China virus and and everything else. But I would expect America to essentially marshal the, the forces of like-minded governments, that is, with Europe, um, with countries like Australia, you know, the Five Eyes Network, uh, with with the democracy, other democracies. And um, and with uh, you know less autocratic states, and uh, to to really assert the value of a rules based order. Now, collectively, there is some there is some power in that, but it is going to be always a game of of sort of incremental achievements, millimeters rather than meters or or, or kilometers, as far as um, uh, any changes that you can make. But I think that's the way the U.S. is going to move. It's going to move with other countries and to reassert that kind of moral basis of there being an international rules-based order. It's not, mm-hmm. of course, what what um, superpowers always do. Um, you know, great powers essentially take the rules they want and they break the rules they want. And the US has been no exception to that as well. Uh, but we're seeing that from China. And I, I think um, what the world's looking for at the moment and what Biden probably will go about trying to deliver is some sort of collective pushback on that, which has a moral core to it. Well, Professor Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute, thank you so much for speaking to Campus Review. It's been a great pleasure, Wade. Thank you.